Okay, so I'm in a run for the first time in a long time because I feel like it would, I don't know, make me feel better <laughs> and be a way to sort of capture what it was for me before, which was the stress release and I feel good and free, but I am also old enough, been around the block enough to know that this is probably not gonna be like, I don't know, easy. <laughs> and I'm kind of scared and I may live to regret it, but you know. Give it a try. Welcome to The Lisa Show, where we take a good look at life. I think ideally, the purpose of self-care is to feel taken care of in your body and to love it as it is. I think somewhere along the line, our conversations about physical self-care have come into shoulds and body shaming, that we should look a certain way and we should do certain things. And it's become so visually emphasized when real physical self-care at its very best should feel nurturing and loving. On today's podcast, we're going to get to the bottom of my sister Gina. Did she actually cause the city of Nashville to flood? Why you should pick up an extra stick of deodorant when you're buying glue sticks and pencils and how to find the fine line between self-care and self-sabotage. You're going to hear a lot of running in this episode, and I just want to be very clear about the reasons why. At first, I started running because I thought, oh, this is what people do for self-care. When you get older, you start running because then it helps you stay in shape. And I found that I went through different phases of really loving it and really hating it. And I found myself at one point in my life actually needing it to really nurture myself. So no one was more surprised than me that running has found its theme into self-care. So I'm here with my sister, Gina. Okay, Gina, how did you get me into running in the first place? Well, I was running, and you wanted to be like me. Okay, so well, I remember I think, it a little differently. But I think that's how that started. No, but you were running marathons. I was. Um, I thought it would be really fun. Our sister Amanda was living in Nashville at the time, and I thought it would be super fun if, as a family, <laughs> as siblings, we all ran a half marathon together. Yeah, and I had never run before. No, and but you were starting to like... Work out consistently. Yeah, totally. And then our brother James had started running a little mm -hmm. bit. And I think Chris had even started a little bit just like, I don't know, we kind of all decided to get in shape. Yeah. And I feel like, well, no, Amanda was turning 30 and that was like oh, a big deal yes. for her. And she was like, I'm going to up it up. But I think she was like, she sort of romanticized the idea of running more mm -hmm. than. Yes, running. because the realities <laughs> of running are, for the most part, yeah. it's super boring. <laughs> yeah. Because if you don't respect the miles. Okay, here we go. Here, Okay. So, if, yeah, do your whole spiel. Okay. You because have this is to, so motivating. If you're going to run a, any distance, I don't care if you're running a 5K, which is 3.1 miles, a 10K, which is 6.2 miles, a half marathon, which is 13.1 miles, or a full marathon, which is 26.2 miles, you have to respect the distance and you have to do the training to prepare for that or 
you will have a miserable experience. You will hate running. <laughs> and even, I mean, the worst that could happen is you could potentially really injure yourself. Like I'm having a fracture flashback <laughs> of when you and I ran the Lincoln, Nebraska half marathon and we waited and waited and oh, waited for I wasn't you. I going to bring that up. And you crossed the finish line drenched, drenched in sweat. And, it is and the humid. first thing that you said was, I didn't respect the miles. And we did it. And, and we, we did it. And that's we, the, our, and the introduction really for a, most of us in the family for running, which is a fun introduction. Well, but for long distance. Yeah. I mean, that you that's pretty far. Like to say a half marathon, that's no, yeah. significant. That's it felt like it. we like to say, that's not nothing. Yeah. And and you feel it afterwards. So we did all cross the finish line holding hands. Yeah, it was so cheesy it was and so beautiful. So wonderful. I loved it. A light rain started falling. Mm-hmm. And then the city of Nashville flooded. Yeah, the I entire city. That. And then we flew out the next day, and the city had major flooding. So yeah, we got out of there just in time. I get so red and sweaty when I run. Actually, just when I exercise. And I need to be studied by science for the amount of sweat. I know it's disgusting, but that when I go to open my phone, my face recognition doesn't work. That's how bad it is. So, yeah. Once you sort of get into running, it just becomes a habit, and it's so easy to lose it. You know, whether I've gone on vacation or something has happened or I got an injury or whatever, and then you stop running for whatever reason for a couple of weeks, it's so hard. It's like starting over again. So there's this kind of pressure when you run, like, just to keep running. Like, I should do this. This is really great. It's good for my joints. It's good for my muscles. It's good for my, you know, mental health and all of that. And so, you know, I should do this for, you know, to to stay healthy, to stay trim or whatever, whatever reason you start doing it for. It's funny talking about running as mental health, but it's just how I see it now. It's it's funny that I don't even see it as kind of a physical thing anymore because, I don't know, some, there's been a lot of TikTok videos that have showed me, have taught me that, you know, running and extreme cardio isn't necessarily the best for you as terms of weight loss and things like that. Anyway, that's just sort of a side note, but I do think it's interesting because I only see running now really as, as something mental. That all shifted for me in 2016. A part of self-care that I think really needs to be addressed is is when, you know, life is ridiculous and, and something horrible happens and your life is completely out of your control. And this is certainly something that I've experienced. So in 2016, my husband was diagnosed with ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. The average life expectancy for someone with that disease is two to five years. It was a horrible blow to our family, obviously. Uh, Our children were all living at home at that time. Um, We have five kids, and they were 8 to 18. Our oldest was 18, our youngest was 8, and then, you know, (laughs) every couple years in between that. And he slowly lost the ability, it's a motor neuron disease, 
slowly lost the ability to just use any of his muscles. They just atrophy. There's a misfiring in the brain for whatever reason. They don't know what causes it. They don't know how to slow it down. They don't know how to cure it. They just don't know anything about this disease. And it was a time in my life that is still very much like present of who I am right now, you know, years later. And at that time, (laughs) self-care, what? Doesn't even matter. Our whole focus for me, for our whole family was keeping Christopher comfortable and adjusting to the ever-changing disease that affects everything in your life, right? It affects how you work or if you work or when you work and it affects your house and and he was in a wheelchair quite quickly and adapting to handicapped accessibility. And my children were at various levels. And my children were at varying levels of development um, and understanding what that disease was. An eight-year-old understands it at a very different level than an 18-year-old. It was so intense. And at that time, I was, um, at in 2016, I was doing a lot of freelance work. I was, my husband had just gotten his PhD and um, tenure at a university as a theater professor, was directing plays. We were just going a million miles an hour and our lives were full of kids and laughter and fun and change and just growing up and creating all those memories. And then with that diagnosis, everything changed. So of course, the way that I saw self-care, it was just non-existent, changed. And as the disease progressed and our lives got harder exponentially, I found myself going back to work, working full-time, ensuring insurance was there for me and the kids, adjusting to a husband who, by the time it was 2018, uh, really couldn't move or talk and required a lot of care, a lot of intense care. And the way we set up our lives and set up our situation was just getting from day to day. They used to tell us, you know, every day that you have with ALS is the best it will ever be. A hundred percent for sure. It'll be worse tomorrow. That's the only thing we know about this disease. And we would always say, that is the worst. Like today's your best day. Tomorrow it'll get worse. And, you know, for two extroverted Um, you know, optimists. We, of course, made fun of that, but it was true. And so you just were, we were hanging on, right, to life. It was a ridiculous time of life. And as a caregiver, I was, I mean, I knew what it was like to be a caregiver of small children. And it was intense. And it kicked my trash, right? (laughs) Like it, I was not on top of it. And then I had a terminally ill husband who was such a great guy and emotionally and physically, it was so difficult. It's hard enough, I think, if you are taking care of someone you love, um, like a parent or a child, of course, there's just something different about it being your partner in life, especially, you know, when you have a a good relationship and that's the person that you go to, frankly, for (laughs) self-care. you know, someone who would encourage it. And and of course he did, you know, as his, as, as all of his abilities were declining, you know, he'd say, you need to get enough sleep, but you need to go to bed. And I think, well, no, I need to, I need to put you to bed. I need to help. 
there's just too much to do, not enough time. And, you know, I think about that all the time when I think self-care. I think, what about those extreme situations, right? What about those caregivers? I'll never not think of that absolutely first. You know, the people who, like me, you know, would be like, well, yeah, must be nice. Or, you know, you get to this place where it's ridiculous to say when you're going through the most emotionally and physically and spiritually demanding time of your life to say, make sure you take care of you. It just, it stings. It hurts. It's just like, there are only 24 hours in a day and then we start over again, you know? And, oh, you know, a massage is going to fix this? No, it it's not. And if I tap out for just a second to do whatever I need to do, it's going to mean more work for me when I come back, right? Or, you know, the preparation necessary to leave, even for, you know, a little bit, is for kids, for, uh, you know, a terminally ill person is, is ridiculous. These are extreme cases. So what does this have to do with running? I'll tell you what it has to do with running. There is this moment that I came to when I was in the thick of it, where I was like, had these sort of like desperate prayers. I don't know. <laughs> I don't, I've always been a prayer. You know, I've prayed my whole life, you know, for help, for comfort, for gratitude, whatever. And have it, it's very personally meaningful to me. And my prayers sometimes were just like, uh, what, uh, what do I do? Like, not even, maybe even a full sentence And I found myself at the breaking point without the ability to take a break, right? If I don't take care of my kids, no one can take care of them in the same way that I can, right? Like I can get help. I don't want to be a martyr about it. You know, I can have people, and I certainly did have some really wonderful friends and family come in and step and help and take um, charge. And we had hired some CNAs to come in and help um, to bathe and dress him and to help overnight uh, because he just needed 24-hour constant care, not being able to move or, or do anything for himself and wanting to give him a really great quality of life. And in that desperate time, emotionally, I, I knew something had to give. Uh, and have you ever been in that situation where you're just so desperate for something? You just want to scream. You just want to run away from home. You know, I... I was finding myself feeling that a lot. Um, And one day I just put on my shoes and said, you know, Chris, I think, was taking a nap. The kids were all entertained and I said, I'll be right back. I've got my phone on me. If you need anything, I'll be right back. And I literally ran away from home. I just, it it, it felt like a metaphor. It was like, if you want to keep running, you can just keep running or running away from your problems. And I, it it was kind of funny, I think at first, because I was like, I just need to get out of my house. I just need to feel like I'm doing something that helps instead of waiting around, waiting for something to get better that's not going to get better. And it's not going to get better for a really, really long time. What does that even mean, get better, Right knowing that there's no cure for this? What does this mean that we're always not going to live like this? That sounds actually awful or actually sounds worse. And I put on my running shoes and I ran outside and I just ran close in my neighborhood. You know, it was, you know, up and down some hills and back again. But it was like I physically was getting that anxiety out. You know, in the beginning of running, Gina would give me all these mantras that I would make fun of her, I still do. 
for like, we eat mountains for breakfast. Or you leave your problems on the road. You leave them on the pavement. Or you work that stuff out on the road. And I say them like that because I make fun of how she says it and how she, you know, cheers other people on and marathons and stuff like that by yelling these kinds of things. Um, we should all have a Gina in our life. And I would just run and I would play really music loud in my head, you know, in my earbuds. And I would run and I just had this like agreement with myself. Just pretend like no one can see you. Just have your moment and just work it out on the pavement. And it wasn't very long, you know, it was like an hour, go run. And it felt like I was doing something. And and I'm sure, you know, we can look up all of the paperwork, all of the studies that show that, you know, the endorphins for exercise or the getting anxiety out or tricking my brain into feeling like I'm actually doing something to, you know, make something better. But that became my lifeline. It became my lifeline. And I had to be really um, strategic about it, right? Because being a caregiver, you're exhausted. So I'd think, I don't have time to run or I don't have the energy or my schedule would change. You know, when there's an emergency, there's an emergency, right? Like when Chris needed me and was having a panic attack or something was wrong with his meds or he was agitated or something like that. Like it, I had to be flexible about when I found those moments to run, but I found them. And it did more for my self-care because it, it was mental, it was just all mental. It wasn't about being a certain weight or a certain size. It wasn't about being social or getting, you know, it was just about, it was about taking a second to do something. And the only way that I would do self-care during that time is if I felt like it was a benefit to my kids or or to Chris at that time because everything was at a life and death situation. So I could calm my brain by saying, you have to stay strong and healthy and you have to get out of the house. You have to get sunshine. You have to see the light of day. You have to do these things because you have to pick up a grown man and take care of him. You need to be physically strong to wake up and take care of your kids. You have to be strong and healthy in order to go into work and support your family. You have to be on your A game. This is go time. And I would tell myself that, and it was like it gave myself permission to take the time to do, quote unquote, self-care because I was fulfilling all of these things and it was benefiting other people because I I was the linchpin in all of it, right? Like if I went down, if I wasn't going to function, then Chris's health would suffer, my kids would suffer. It, it just wasn't an option. So... When I think of running, I'm like, yeah, you can get the cute outfits and you can get the good shoes, but also you just need to work it out on the pavement. I wonder how much we kind of miss out on with self-care when we only do things that sort of luxurious, sort of pushing past that initial discomfort of kind of doing something that's good for you, but is maybe a little bit more difficult or takes a little bit more effort. But on the other side of that is sort of the reward you're looking for. 
There are a lot of things that we feel pressured to do or shoulds that I want to take back and turn into real self-care, but I don't want to have to go through a devastating tragedy to do that. Especially as parents, there's a lot of things that we feel like we should be doing better. And it seems like that list keeps growing and growing. And one of the big ones is food. So I talked with Carrie Ann Cheney from Oh Sweet Basil about this, and this is what she had to say. There's a lot of shoulds, right, when we're taking care of kids or cooking for them. You know, oh, we should probably be eating healthier. Or I remember a while back, I felt so guilty. I was like, oh, you know when you get like picky toddlers and little kids and stuff? And I bought into that. I think it was like Jerry Seinfeld's wife. She wrote that cookbook where she basically pureed vegetables mm-hmm. and fruits and stuff like on Sunday night and then like snuck them into their kids' food. You know, you can sneak in sweet potatoes into mac and cheese or like, and I tried one time and I snuck in like some more protein. And so I got some cottage cheese and some beets into pancakes. And even my husband and, and for sure all my kids like just looked at me like, what what, what are we doing? This, this is we awful. We see through you. Yeah, we <laughs> See all your tricks, lady. <laughs> so, uh, when we're when we have all these shoulds in the back of our mind, you know, we should be eating healthier. We should be saving money on our grocery shopping. We should we shouldn't eat so many sweets. And you know, t- talk to me about the why of what you do and how it it seems to me that you have this really positive, healthy approach to taking care of of our food and our bodies. Mm, Yeah. I, you know, I think there has to be an inner conversation switch within people and families right now. The older we've gotten, we've gotten more knowledgeable about things, right? Like I'm, I'm a lot smarter about, you know, even just a haircut. Oh, why would I do that in high school? Now I know better. But the problem is, is that we get stuck in this knowledge-based living. Like, I've got to learn how to eat better, and I've got to learn how to, oh, my goodness, I didn't Mm -hmm. know if I made that healthy swap that I could be doing something better for my family. And so there is this constant pressure of trying to find the best way to eat, to live, to function. And I think we need to take a deep breath and recognize that... um, Bodies, food, eating, it's not a problem to be solved. It's something to be loved. And when we can kind of get our minds into a healthier place with that and approach things in an excited get-to way, then everything falls into place. I'll give you an example. Um, I went through really hard pregnancies with my children. And and I, I don't mean like, oh, I, you know, I, it was rough. Yeah, I was really tired. Or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no. yeah, yeah. This, yeah. this was like hospitalizations and feeding tubes and that kind of thing. And and in a strange way, it became a really great blessing in my life to have gone through actual literal starvation. And hmm. um, because my body was so sick and I couldn't eat, when I was finally you know done with the pregnancy and had this new baby, I found myself saying in my head a lot. I get to eat dinner. I get to make a meal for my family. I get to have this cookie. I can't believe I get to have a glass of water. And all of a sudden, the light went on in my head, and I went, oh, my goodness. (laughs) Getting my child a drink of chocolate milk is still I get to serve him. 
it doesn't have to be, I should be giving him whole milk or I should be offering water more. It, it is instead an opportunity mm. for me to show love to myself, my body, to my family, to them. And, and it has totally changed our lives because when you appreciate it and love it, you naturally find yourself moving in healthier directions because all of a sudden I get to have this turkey and cheese and avocado for lunch. It makes it something you want to do again instead of a chore. Now, if you're like me, this all sounds good and nice, but it always feels like I'm falling short. I mean, even just trying to be a good example of taking care of myself seems like it makes it harder to take care of myself. Carrie Ann went on to explain how she stays centered. One thing that I have to do is remember that everything starts with me, right? So in my head, I'm telling myself, Carrie Ann, you're probably going to mess up. You're probably going to screw up quite a few things with these kids. And they're probably one day going to look at you and be like, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you teach me? And that's okay because my parents made mistakes too. And I'm still awesome. (laughs) We're all still awesome. We're still making it. And so I start with this inner dialogue. I've been trying so hard to be mindful about how I speak to myself in my mind. Just letting it go because they're going to scream and pout about things that is not a reflection of me and my parenting. I'm not failing, and that's why we're in this moment struggling together. They're just trying to try out what is going to get when them it comes their down way. To it, what we make for dinner can feel like an insignificant thing just to really get hung up on when it comes to taking care of ourselves and our families. So, you know, what is the point? Why does it matter if we're making food out of guilt or because it's actually meaningful? Our way of living right now is a little bit catastrophic in my opinion. You know, we're, we're running from one thing to the next and looking to fill emptiness with as many things as possible. And when they don't end up giving us the results we want, we start out looking again. But, but what we really need, what we're really aching for, isn't even to be filled up with food We're looking for true nourishment, and there is a difference there. Hmm. Nourishment comes when we are connecting with those around us and when we are connecting with ourselves, with God, with, with ultimately what our values are. What do you really value in life? I said to someone the other day that, you know, I, I wish I put happiness and fun as a higher priority in my life, but instead I'm feeling very task-oriented lately. And they said to me, well, I'll disagree. I think you have it very high up, and that's why you're concerned about the the imbalance right now. That's why you're feeling so task-oriented is because you're trying to always get to that place. Well, I feel the same way with food and eating. Um, if we can remember this is our time to rest, it's our time to love on someone, it's our time to receive love from them. Our daughter's 12, and let me tell you what, her... Her stories never end. (laughs) Bless her heart. The the talking goes on and on and on. And I find myself like wanting to slump down and melt out of my chair onto the floor and just be like, I can't, I can't, it's so much. (laughs) Let's wrap it up. (laughs) Wrap it up, girlfriend. But but instead I'm I'm trying really hard to recognize that time is both the blessing and the enemy. And if I'm not careful 
this little girl will one day be walking out the door and I'll be sitting alone at the table wishing I wasn't alone, right? Wishing the kids were there. So when are we going to start inhaling as a society instead of exhaling? And I think our readers feel that. I think our readers feel that I'm saying it's okay if they aren't in three hours of dance every day (laughs) and you come home and have dinner together. And it's okay if all you did is get that packaged tortellini, throw it in a pan with a little olive oil and fry it up and you're eating it with melted mozzarella on top. Like, it's really delicious, let me tell you. So I think ultimately our readers are feeling from me this, this importance in really nourishing ourselves with the things that will last forever. The why is in the connecting. The why is in forever. And that's far more nourishing than food. Whether it's running or cooking for our kids or getting your hair done, there are a lot of things that we feel pressured to do that we can take back. We can reclaim these shoulds and really use them to actually nurture our emotional health and take care of ourselves. What it really comes down to is like Carrie Ann said, our why. When my husband passed away in June of 2020, you know, during a global pandemic where we couldn't have a, a funeral or really see our friends and and all of our family and grieve and mourn together, it was it was such a ridiculous time, right? And and I don't know what it would have been like or how it would have been different if we could see our friends and family, I don't know. I just, I I laugh about it because I think who cares, right? I only know this one experience and I can talk about it now because it's been a couple of years, but looking back, like that was just such a, a ridiculous time. And I, and I know that in a lot of ways I was still dealing with a little PTSD with the the last few months of his life. And so it was a desperate time, right? Because you're looking around and you're thinking, this is the day that we dreaded. This is, is coming. We're having a funeral, but it's not really a funeral. What's happening? What do I have to do? How do I stop crying? How do I help my kids? It's just an absolute storm of uncertainty. And I've never... I had never been in a situation even remotely like that, and I found myself drowning in it. And it's so funny, so interesting, the things that pop into your mind, right, at times like this. And for me, I just thought, and I had gotten really used to living like, what is the next thing that I have to do? You know, people will say, oh, just take one day at a time. For me at that time, it was like, what do I do from moment to moment right now? Right now, what do I do? Okay, you know, I had to go pick out a casket. I had to go make this horrible decision. You know, people are asking me questions and I just think, okay, just stay calm and just answer the question, get to that next moment and not think much beyond that. In one of those moments, I was sort of looking around and because we had been isolated for so many months, it had been forever since any of my kids had gotten a haircut or had I'd had my hair done, right? And, and for me, there was a lot of, you know, sort of ways to you know, be a, show up and be a woman in today's society, right? Like you can get a million, you know, different services, services done, you know, from your eyelashes and your eyebrows and your nails and da, 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 da. For, for a lot of reasons, I just thought the one thing I'm going to get done is to get my hair done, right? One of my dearest friends, um, Michelle, is a, is a great hairstylist. We met, 
you know, 20 years before when we were in the same neighborhood and my husband through his church calling had said, hey, I met these um, uh, Annie and Michelle that live in the condo across from us. You have to meet them. You're going to love them. And I did, and I do. <laughs> they were great. And she's been doing my hair ever since from her in her condo to now in her salon um, in a neighboring city. And it's just one of those things that I love being able to outsource. I would just sit in her chair, and usually it was only a couple of times of a year that I could travel, you know, to be where she is and make the appointment because just I was busy with little kids and stuff like that. And so she, it, it's, it's, it was always more than, you know, getting my hair done. It was visiting with a friend and, and feeling a little fancy and all of that stuff. I loved that. It had been forever since I had sat in her chair or any of my kids had, had gotten their hair cut. And it was one of those things where you were like, okay, we have to pick out clothes for the funeral. Wait, what? He died? You know, you're, oh, having to remind yourself over and over again of these little, little things. So this little detail of, oh, we're going to have a funeral. Oh, there's going to be pictures because we're going to want to remember this because I have a feeling I'm not going to remember a lot the way that my brain is right now in grief and in trauma mode. And I want to be able to look back and I don't know, do I want to look back? And your brain is just going from one little tiny thing to the next and so one of those elements was, well, if we're getting pictures taken, we should probably cut the kids' hair. We all look horrible, <laughs> which was true. And I actually don't even remember the sequence of events. I don't know if I called Michelle or if I texted her or if my sister Gina, who I outsourced a lot of my you know decision-making at that time to, called her. But all I remember, and I will never forget for as long as I live— is I remember the night before the funeral, Michelle coming in with Annie, her assistant, and very quietly her setting up all of her hair stuff without saying anything, laying out the scissors and the combs and the product and grabbing a chair quietly, putting it in the middle of my kitchen and saying, who should go first? And just grabbing one of the kids, sitting them down, and then quietly cutting their hair. And it was reverent. It was quiet. Nobody said anything. I didn't feel like talking. I mean, here's one of my dearest friends. And I, I couldn't say anything. She was wearing a mask. We were all wearing masks. But we also didn't care about anything. But also we cared about everything too deeply. It was a time where I I didn't know. I had to remind myself what day it was, what time it was. And she just quietly came in and started cutting hair. And she cut all five of my kids' hair. And I remember looking at the time and thinking, oh, I'm using up a lot of your time. Oh, I feel bad about this. Oh, and she just would look at me like, everything's fine. Everything's fine. And then when the last child got their haircut... She turned to me and she said, okay, you. And I said, oh, no, 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 no. I've taken too much of your time. I'm, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care about my hair. And she said, sit down. And so she said, I'm just going to go really quick. So I sat down. I sat down and she cut my hair. And it's so silly. But I thought, I can't believe 
Michelle's cutting my hair for my husband's funeral. I hate this. And I just sat there and I cried and she didn't say anything. She didn't try to make me feel better or because she just knew in that moment. It's so, so ridiculous. And she cut my hair and she said, we're going to put a little rinse on it. You know, she's And I kind of laughed because she's a coloring expert, you know. (laughs) She's like, come on, you're going to be glad that I did this. And I just sat there and I just felt like, you know, this was the first time that I had had, you know, human contact other than my children. And um, it just felt very reverent. It, It really did. It felt very sacred. She cut my hair. It didn't take very long. And she quietly packed up her stuff and left. You know, without saying anything, just cutting our hair, I felt so seen and so cared for and so nurtured. And I know my kids did too. And we were so glad that we just, I don't know, had our hair cut so that we looked our best for Chris's funeral. And I look back on those pictures, right? And... They're horrible pictures, right? They're pictures of you, at, at, you know, on one of the worst days of your life and your kids look pained and you kind of have those smiles by the casket and you're just thinking, you remember what you were thinking when that picture was taken and you have that smile on your face and it brings back a lot of feelings, right? But it also brings back this like beautiful memory of this haircut that just sort of transcends this idea of self-care, right? Like when someone else can do something for you that you can't even really express that you need, that you actually are sort of fighting against and then does that thing and helps you see, feel, and helps you feel seen and heard. It is difficult for me to fully express what that was, but I'll never forget it. And I know that there are a lot of ways that you know, getting your hair cut or colored or whatever seems vain. Absolutely. I, and I appreciate that argument, right? Self-care can get out of control and, you know, where is the line for that? And and there is a certain measure of, you know, what works for one person, something doesn't work for another, or, or we care about different things. It doesn't matter. It, you know, it's not about, it's not about the haircut. It, it, it's about being cared for. It's, for me, it, it was about being seen and and being nurtured in a way that I hadn't been for a really long time. When I feel really cared for and seen and nurtured, I feel like I'm honoring sort of the divinity inside of me. And, and I don't want to separate that from how I parent or how I take care of myself. So when I see my kids, and you know, I love them so much, and I realize that they have this, you know, divinity in them. And I just want them to feel it and to take care and nurture themselves. And I realize that that this is how God sees me as well. And so there becomes this sort of higher purpose for taking care of yourself, right? Like once you feel that you have that worth and you feel like it's important because you're important, it helps you not only take care of yourself, but it affects how you see others as well. And that real caring and nurturing matters. We need more of it in the world. The Lisa Show is a production of BYU Radio. It's hosted by Lisa Valentine Clark and produced by McKay Menden and Becca Hurley 
with help from Kaya Dib and music and post-production by Sam Clausen. If you like the show, please leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And we would love to hear your questions and suggestions. Reach out to us on Instagram and Facebook. Next week on The Lisa Show. My husband and I flew out to San Francisco. We were trying to raise money for our business, and we were pitching Goldman Sachs. Whoa. So this was like, this was a big time meeting. And so I'm in my little business suit. Not really, but whatever. I right. <laughs> feel yeah. like business is like good. <laughs> there for the pitch. And mid-pitch, I remember very vividly my eyelids closing for a rest. And the next thing I know, Nate is elbowing me, and I'm sound asleep <gasps> in a pitch meeting oh, with Goldman no. Sachs. That's next week on The Lisa Show. Be sure to find it wherever you download your podcasts. going a minute? Oh, holy cow.